I wonder, when you think about your faith, how much do you think about yourself? And how much do you think about other people? Along those same lines, when you evaluate your faith, how much of your judgment is based around your performance, doing all the right things, you know, showing up to worship and serving and giving and reading your Bible and praying, etc., things like that. Some of you are like, um, should I be evaluating my faith? <laughs> Let me ask this. Does your faith ever feel like a checklist where once you've covered all the bullet points on the list, you're done and you're good to go? If so, how many of the things on your checklist revolve around you and how many things on your checklist of your faith revolve around other people? My guess is, partly just because you're an American, my guess is that your faith is a highly personal thing and that your faith is almost entirely about you. The question is, is that okay? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I don't know, but there's a passage in the book of John that I think might shed some light on the answers to at least some of those questions. And that's the passage that we're going to look at together today. For the last couple of weeks, we've been in a teaching series titled Signs. And because the series is called Signs and because there are so many funny signs out there, I thought I would take just a moment at the beginning here to show you a few of them. Like this sign that says, people are eating children in this area. Please leash your dog and clean up after them. I'm pretty sure the sign was supposed to say, people are eating and children are playing. But there you go. Uh, there's this British sign, which is actually a menu for fish and chips. And uh, according to the sign, apparently if you want chips without chips, it's just one pound 90. It's not a bad price. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the sign for the, the store fashion art, but I think their sign needs some work. Take a look at this. Yeah. And last but not least, uh, you guys know how whenever you see signs for diets and stuff with a before and after photo, a lot of times those transformations are hard to believe, but this one is really hard to believe. That is some before and after photo. Well, the series that we're in is actually based on the book of John. And the Apostle John says something near the end of his gospel that where over the course of his 21 chapters, he documents seven different times that Jesus did something miraculous. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all document more of Jesus' miracles, but John only gives us seven. And interestingly, unlike the others, he doesn't refer to those events so much as miracles as he refers to them as simply signs. And near the end of his gospel, he writes this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, talking about how he had done more than just the seven things that he covered in his gospel. But Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's ultimate goal was that you would read about these events, which he took great care to document in detail. And his goal was that you would read about these events and based on the power that Jesus repeatedly displayed, you would believe that there was something to him. He wanted you to believe that John, first of all, was a credible witness. Second of all, that he documented these events with care and not with exaggeration. 
And then that because of that, you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. But not only that, but John hoped that when you come to that conclusion that you would believe in him, meaning that you would make a decision to give your life to him. And John hoped that by believing in Jesus, you would find real, abundant, eternal life. That was John's goal in documenting these signs. Over the last two weeks, we looked at Jesus' first sign when he turned water into wine at a wedding reception, and his second sign when he healed a young boy who was on his deathbed, literally about to die. We're not going to rehash those signs today. You can go watch them on our app or on our website if you missed them. But I do want to point out something. I want to point out that Jesus' first miracle happened during a time of joy and celebration. Again, it was during a wedding reception. His second miracle happened in a moment of deep fear and anxiety. And here's the observation I want us to make, that Jesus stepped into both situations equally. I think part of the reason that John recorded these two miracles as his first two signs was because he wanted to make clear that God wants to work in our lives when everything is going great and we're up on the mountaintop and God wants to work in our lives when everything is falling down around us, when we are at our lowest down in the valley. And the point is that no matter what type of season you find yourself in today, God longs to walk with you through it if you'll let him. Today, today will be a little bit different than most teachings that I give. And no, I don't mean when I say that it will be different, I don't mean that it will be short because that would just be too different, uh, too crazy, right? Um, but normally when we dig into a passage of scripture together, I try to focus on one thing, one aspect of the story, one takeaway, one big idea. And I think that's usually the right approach because if we can apply even one thing to our lives and to begin to live differently in one way every single weekend, I think we're doing pretty good. But today's gonna be a little bit different. As I studied the sign that we're going to take a look at today, I do think that there is a big idea. I do think that there is an overarching point to this entire passage, and we'll get to that. But along the way, there are so many amazing little side tangents, so many observations about how God works, so many little bunny trails, if you will, that today I'm just going to point a bunch of them out to you. And I will fully admit up front that there is no way we will have time to really unpack all of the observations I want us to make, but I'm just gonna point them out to you. And my hope and my prayer is that whatever you're supposed to hear today, that's what would stick with you. So I'm gonna throw a lot at you and it's your job to lean into the Holy Spirit and ask, okay, Lord, what do you wanna to say to me today? What do you want me to take away from this passage? All right? All right. Now, one of the things that separates the miracle that we're going to look at today from the first two is that in both of the first two miracles, we see the same format happening. We see that both, both stories, both events followed the same format. First of all, there was a moment of crisis. Then somebody asked Jesus to get involved. The third step was that he did the miraculous. And the end result was that people believed in him. Same exact formula for two very different miracles. The third miracle, though, the one that we're going to look at today, does not follow that same formula. 
There is no moment of crisis. Nobody asks Jesus to do anything. And what really sets this miracle apart from the first two is that the response to the miracle is almost an entirely separate story altogether. The passage containing this sign actually reads more like a play with two acts. It's kind of like when you go to see a, a musical or a production at the theater and there's, you know, usually two acts with an intermission in between so you can go out to the lobby and buy more milk duds. Well, that's kind of how John lays out this miracle. And I'll tell you up front what the two acts are just so you can track along. We're going to begin with act one, which is titled The Miracle at the Pool. And then I'm not going to give you an intermission. You can't go get more milk duds. But then we're going to shift to the second act, which I've titled La Resistance. Now, why a French title for the second act? I don't really know. I just like saying La Resistance. Okay, so I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. I just think so. This is like in my mind how a French, you know, Pepe Le Pew would say La Resistance. I don't know. Okay, but we're going to begin with Act 1, The Miracle at the Pool. This begins in John chapter 5. We're going to work our way through the, through the book of uh, John chapter 5, uh, verse by verse, starting in verse 1. There we read that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So much detail here. John says that, you know, there is in Jerusalem. He's pointing out to his first century readers, you know, hey, you can go look at this yourself. You know, it's still there. Check out my details and, and you know, do like a credit check here on me, right? And, and so the pool is actually still there today. This pool has been excavated, and today you can... Go to the pool if you go visit uh, the city of Jerusalem. But verse 3, we read, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Okay, so John is painting a picture for us. He's giving us the context, the backstory. He's, he's kind of giving us the setting. So try to imagine this for a moment. You've got this large pool area. And actually, we know that there were two pools there next to each other, and they were surrounded on all four sides by a colonnade. But remember, there was a fifth colonnade, and that fifth colonnade went right down the middle between the two. And so all around this pool, we're told that a great number of people, so this was a lot of people, with a variety of disabilities would lie on the ground, like in this area. And you have people who can't walk. We're told that some of the people were paralyzed, which means not only could they not walk, but they weren't able to move. We're told that there were people who were blind there, and I'm sure that the list of disabilities goes on. This would have been a heartbreaking scene. People in so much pain, physically, no doubt emotionally. You know, if they had anyone who loved them, maybe they had carried them in in the morning, and then maybe they would bring them home in the evening. But if they didn't have anyone who provided care for them, they would just be left here and they would lie with, with no other place to go. Day after day, night after night, begging maybe for food. You can imagine what this would have looked like. You can imagine what this would have sounded like as people begged or cried out in pain, praying for relief. You can imagine also what this would have smelled like if people weren't physically able to walk, this area must have been filled with human excrement. It would have been humiliating, but they would have had no other choice than to relieve themselves wherever they were. 
This would have been a place where from time to time, a government employee probably had to come through and remove the bodies of the people who had passed. It would have broken your heart to see. It would have made your stomach turn to smell. And it would have been the type of place that you avoided, if you could, at all costs. And so you wonder, why were all these people there? How did this become the spot to leave the sick? Well, verse 4 tells us, it says, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir, the, stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So people were surrounding this pool because they believed that when the water was stirred up, whoever got into the water first would be cured. This is a super interesting verse. It's super interesting for one reason in that if you look closely in your Bibles, if you have a physical Bible in front of you, or even if you're reading the Bible online, look closely and there's a very good chance you'll see that verse 4 is left out of the narrative. Most Bibles today go from verse 3 to verse 5, and they include verse 4, if at all, usually down in the study notes or in the margins. The reason for that is because scholars today pretty much unanimously agree that John was not trying to endorse this belief. All John was trying to do was explain why so many disabled people surrounded this pool. He was not saying God really healed people at random like this, like he enjoyed playing a giant game with everybody's health. And so this verse has been removed, in, or, or moved into the margins so that people don't misunderstand that. Interesting if you ever play Bible trivia, but not really the main point. Again, this was the type of place that you would have avoided at all costs, especially for the Jewish people who were trying to keep themselves ceremonially clean, and especially for a Jewish rabbi who was required to keep himself ceremonially clean. For a Jewish rabbi, with the need to stay clean, you would not have wanted to be within a thousand yards of this place. They had very detailed rules that they were trying to keep if they were going to stay ceremonially clean. And yet, when he arrives in Jerusalem, that's exactly where Jesus heads. Jesus doesn't ask, where are all the healthy people hanging out? He doesn't say, point me in the direction of the people who have it all together. The people whose lives are neat and tidy and who it appears have got it all figured out. No, he goes, where are the sick? Where are the poor? Where are the lonely? Where are the desperate? Where are the broken? Because I want to go there. Take me to them. If you don't want to come with me, that's fine. But point me in their direction. Come on, how good is this? God doesn't ask us to clean up our lives before he'll love us. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our lives before he'll come to us because he knows that we can't clean up our lives on our own. Instead, he pursues us in our mess. He finds us when we can't move towards him. He speaks to us. He tugs at our heart. He tries to get our attention in the midst of the drama. He longs to speak to us. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. And if you ever think 
in the middle of your struggle, that God doesn't want to help you until you clean things up a little bit, you couldn't be more wrong. God never has the attitude of you made your bed, now you can sleep in it. No. No, no, no. Obviously, there are consequences to our decisions. But in the middle of our mess, God runs to you, not away from you. Verse 5 says, one who had been there, or one who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I just want to acknowledge that the term invalid seems pretty offensive to us today. So let me explain that for a second. An invalid, by definition, refers to someone who became disabled at some point in their life, either through injury or illness. And so this gentleman was not born with this disability. We don't know all the details about his health, but it is clear that at some point he had become unable to walk. And we're told that he had lived with this disability for 38 years. This would have been a very long time for someone in their culture to live in this condition. In the first century, people with a disability like this had extremely short life expectancies. And if he wasn't born with this disability, that means that he would have been most likely in his 40s or even 50s. And in this sea of people who were paralyzed, blind, and disabled, he would have stood out among them. Verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? Do you want to get well? Jesus, who doesn't want to get well? Well, actually, a lot of people don't really want to get well. It's sort of like how prison inmates can sometimes develop what's called institutional syndrome. This is a real thing where they spend so many years in prison that they don't know how to live on their own. And in some cases, they genuinely don't want to learn how to live on their own. So when they get out, they commit another crime for no other reason than simply they want to be sent back to prison. They know it might not be ideal, but for them, it's what's comfortable. It's all they know. And so if you feel like your life is in a mess in some, some way right now, I want to ask you this question. Do you want to get well? Do you? Really? Back in January, we did a series on the spiritual disciplines. And you might remember me saying in that series that desire doesn't determine who you become. Discipline does. It is never enough to just want to get well. You have to be willing to do the hard work to get well. A lot of times, it's easier to push the sickness down or just try to cover it up and just go on presenting like everything is okay. But if some area of your life is a mess, maybe the thing that you need to remember from today or process after this today is the true answer to this question. Do you want to get well? Well, Jesus asks this man if he wants to get well, 
And the man responds, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This guy was like, yeah, I want to get well. Jesus, I wouldn't go to all the trouble of getting dropped off here each morning and picked up each evening if I didn't want to. But then during the day, my caretaker has to leave me and I can't move very well. I'm, I'm so slow that every time the water gets stirred, somebody beats me down into the water. This man knows what life was like to be healthy. Maybe he can vaguely remember running around as a little boy. Maybe he played sports as a teenager. We don't know, but he does say, yes, Jesus, I want to get well. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Get up. What a simple profound statement that was. How glorious those words must have sounded to this man as he felt his strength come back and he felt his legs begin to move and he knew, I've been healed. You know what I wonder about those, those two words, get up? I wonder if those words spoken by Jesus to this man were a foreshadowing. I wonder if these are the same two words that God the Father spoke over Jesus after he had laid in the grave for a couple of days. I can't help but wonder if after Jesus was crucified, if after he was wrapped in the linen cloths and after he was laid to rest and the stone was rolled across the entrance to the tomb, I wonder if for 72 hours, God the Father just held himself back till the timing was perfect and when it finally was, he said the exact same thing to Jesus, get up. And I wonder if he wants to say the same thing to some of you today, get up, get up. I think he wants to say to some of you, this is your time. This is your chance. I'm here and I will heal you, but you've got to get up. I want you to decide once and for all that you want it. And I want you to own it. I want you to hear yourself say the words, I want to get well. And then I want you to take a step, get up. This man gets up and he walks. And he picks up his mat like Jesus told him to. And I bet after 38 years, he couldn't get away from those colonnades fast enough. Miracle, sign number three, end scene. The miracle is over, but the drama doesn't end there. The drama is just beginning. Act two, la resistance. Verse eight continues. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Uh-oh. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Most likely this man was pumped up. Maybe he was running when he left the pool area. We don't know, but somehow there was enough of a scene that the Jewish religious leaders took notice and they saw him carrying his mat. So they approached him and they say something like, hey, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry a mat. 
Now, interesting side note, the law did not forbid him or anyone to carry their mat on the Sabbath. This was only a violation of the religious leader's extra rules, which they had placed on top of the law. Yes, God had told the Jewish people in the law to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. But then the religious leaders had taken that command and they listed out on top of it 39 other things to make it perfectly clear what you were and were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And believe it or, or not, carrying your mat was rule number, you want to take a guess? 39. Yeah, this was rule 39 of 39. We hear this today and we naturally think, What's the big deal? Who cares? But for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, this was a very big deal because they had very clear lists and rules on what they were allowed to do and what they were not allowed to do. And nothing, I mean nothing, changed those rules. They lived them out perfectly. They had ironed out all of the details, all of the questions around anything that God had called the people to do in the law. And in the process of doing so, they had created layer on top of layer on top of layer of extra rules that they followed. If ever there was a religious checklist, they had it. And I'm sure in some ways, I'm sure what was nice about that was that as long as they kept all the rules, they could go about their life and never really worry about where they stood with God. They knew instantly how they were doing when it came to them and God. Did I keep all the rules today? Yeah, I think I did. Okay, then you're good to go. The problem with this approach to God is that it completely misses the point. The problem with this approach to God is that God hates it because it reduces our faith down to a checklist of do's and don'ts. It restrains our faith to ourself. And that was never what God wanted. That was never God's plan. God never wanted a group of robots who kept all the rules and got an A plus on their report card and then went on their way doing whatever they wanted. God created humanity so that he could be in community with us. He wanted a relationship with us. He wants to open our eyes to more of himself. And then he wants to go on this journey called life with us. Life where he works through us in the lives of other people. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were completely missing it. God had just done something miraculous. And instead of celebrating the miracle God had done, they were only concerned with the fact that this guy was carrying his mat. How ridiculous. And so they stop this man and they're like, you know, what are you doing? You're violating the, 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 the law. And then verse 11, he responds, we read, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So this guy is like, hey, I'm not looking for any trouble. All I know is that like 30 minutes ago, I was laying by the pool over there. And I had been doing what I had been doing for the last 38 years. This guy came up to me, asked if I wanted to get well. I said yes. Then he healed me. He told me to pick up my mat and to walk. What was I going to do? Tell him no? 
Verse 12, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who he was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. This had been a busy place, and Jesus, like he so often did, didn't want to stick around for everybody to start congratulating him, so he had slipped away into the crowd. But Jesus somehow knows what's going on with the religious leaders. Maybe he was watching their conversation from a distance, you know, after the man had gotten up and walked away. Maybe one of his disciples had followed the man and come back to Jesus and reported what was going on. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus then goes looking for this man. And when he finds him in the temple courts, he says something very interesting to him. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This seems like a very odd thing for Jesus to say. Because at first glance, it appears to sort of make it sound like Jesus was implying that his physical ailment was punishment for some sin that he had done when he was young. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I did a lot of research on this, and there are a lot of opinions out there. But I think that Jesus was doing one of two things. I think it's one of two things, and I'm not really sure which one it is, so you can decide for yourself. But the first option was that Jesus was simply making a joke, right? We've talked before around here about the fact that the Gospels make it pretty clear that Jesus had a sense of humor. He had a pretty funny side. And so maybe he thought the Jewish leaders were being so ridiculous that he finds this guy and he slaps him on the shoulder and he's like, hey, buddy, I know you've only been able to walk for about, what, five minutes? In the eyes of the religious leaders, you've already started committing some pretty terrible sins. You better stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And that guy would have been like, what could happen to me? That would be even worse than what I've just come through. I've been disabled for the last 38 years. And then they had a pretty good laugh about the ridiculousness of the Pharisees. That's option one. The other option that has some credibility that I think could be the, the, you know, what God was doing here, what Jesus was doing here. The other option was that Jesus was calling this man to a faith that was much deeper than anything the religious leaders could understand. Maybe after this guy was confronted with the rules, we don't know, but he might have immediately put the mat down and been like, oh my goodness, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm going to fall in line. I'll follow all the rules. And maybe Jesus was saying, no, don't go there. Maybe Jesus was saying, listen, God just did something amazing in your life. Don't reduce your faith down to a bunch of do's and don'ts like the Pharisees have. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. And if you reduce your faith down to a checklist of do's and don'ts like they have, you risk missing out on so much of what God wants to do in you and through you. And missing out on all that God wants to do would be far worse than any physical ailment. Ultimately, we don't know. What do you think Jesus meant? Verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. They went and found him. 
Not only had he worked on the Sabbath by healing somebody, even worse than that for them, he had told somebody else to violate the Sabbath too. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to, or always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, John tells us, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders understood that when Jesus said, my father never takes a day off and neither do I, he was essentially claiming to be one with God, which is accurate. That is what Jesus was claiming. They weren't wrong about that. But clearly, they did not believe this to be true. John's entire gospel revolves around this theme of believing in Jesus. At the end of both the first and the second miracles and signs, John tells us that the end result was that people believed. Sadly, we don't see that here. All we see is a rejection of belief in Jesus and a determination to oppose him. And as we work our way through the rest of the book of John over the coming weeks, we're going to see this contrast in response only intensify. People either looked at the evidence, humbly recognized that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and they believed in him, or they rejected the evidence, refused to believe, and set themselves up against Jesus. And in many ways, it's the same for us today. At the end of the day, nobody gets to decide for anyone else what you believe about Jesus. That is a personal decision that you get to make for yourself. But from there, our faith becomes less about us and more about the us around us. The religious leaders missed this. They operated out of the assumption that the main thing God wanted from them was to keep themselves clean, neat, and tidy, even if that meant ignoring the needs of messy people around them. But Jesus modeled the exact opposite. Time and time again, Jesus modeled that what God wants are followers who will lay down what's good for them in order to better love and serve those around them. Jesus called his followers to reject the temptation to keep ourselves nice and clean at all costs. He made clear that what he wants are followers who will do everything in their power to tangibly help people who are hurting, even if that means getting a little messy ourselves. Here's a thought for you to process today, to wrestle with today. If you ever find yourself in a situation where your faith requires you to avoid helping someone because they're in too deep of a mess, your faith has gotten off track. You follow me? I'll say that again because you might need to wrestle with this a little bit. But I said, if you ever find yourself in a situation where your faith requires you to avoid helping someone because they're in too deep of a mess, your faith has gotten off track. This is what God has called us to do and who he has called us to be. 
We are the hands and feet of Jesus to the community around us. And that doesn't mean we wash our hands and then tuck them in our pockets so they stay nice and clean. It means that we roll up our shirt sleeves and we get our hands messy if that's what it takes to help awaken people to Jesus. If that's what it takes to help more people come to believe in him. Later on, Jesus would look at a very similar group of religious leaders who kept all the commandments. And he would say to them, listen, do you want to know what God really wants the most? He wants you to love him with everything you've got, your whole heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And he wants you to love your neighbors as yourself. That means what God wants is for us to leverage our time, to leverage our money, our energy, our power, not just for ourselves and what's good for us, but for the good of the people around us. May we be people who love one another, who lay down our lives for each other, who put the needs of other people around, or like the needs of other people around us ahead of our own. People who see our faith as being a much, as much about others as we see it being about ourselves. Who evaluate how we're doing in relation to how much we are loving other people, not in relation to how much we're keeping the checklist covered. That type of faith changed the world 2,000 years ago. And it still has the power to change the world today. That's what we're part of. That's what we're trying to do. That's what you're invited to be part of here at Heartland. You are invited into a faith that is as much about the people around you as it is about you. That's what Jesus modeled for those who believe in him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, it's easy for our faith to become only about us. But Lord, we recognize that you called us to something bigger than that. You called us to a faith that is as much about other people as it is about us. So would you help us to do better than the religious leaders did? Would you help us to get this right? And Lord, for those of us who believe in you, as we live this out, would you cause it to help more people believe in you as well? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody who agreed said, Amen.